I'll be reading this morning from the book of Esther, not Ezra, Esther. And so you can turn to that. It's, um, if you find Psalms, before Psalms is Job, and before Job is Esther. So if you can stand as I read from Esther, chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Esther 4, 9. And Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your word and for the life that you've offered up for us, that you did not count your own life dear to yourself but you willingly and freely gave yourself for us. Thank you, God, that you have, as we were reminded in communion, you've removed the barrier, the dividing wall, through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. I pray, God, that as we just look to your word, that we would again just hear your spirit and that we would yield in faith and obedience, God, to what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we have been and are still in the book of Esther, except for today, because in, in Ezra, because in Ezra, as you may recall, I've said a couple of times that there is a gap of almost 60 years between chapters 6 and 7. So in the first six chapters, there is the first return under the decree of Cyrus to come back and rebuild the temple. And it took them a number of years, and they finally got that done. Um, there was opposition, there was complacency, there was a wrong, wrong priorities in building their own homes first. But they finally got the temple built, and that brings us to the end of chapter 6 in Ezra. And then before chapter 7 starts, there's a gap of 57 to 58 years. And in that gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra is the story of Esther. And I am tempted just to not stop and look at Esther, but actually the story of Esther is very important for understanding what's going to happen next in the book of Ezra. And so it will help set the stage for the conclusion of Ezra to see what's happening in Esther. Esther is a very familiar story to all of us. It's one of the favorite stories that we teach our children. We like to... um, um, 
tell it to everybody. It seems to be a story of, 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 um, of intrigue and, and, and of potential annihilation and last-minute delivery. And some even present it as a story of romance and, and the love between a king and this poor um, Jewish girl who rises to the top and her, her cousin who had been acting as her adopted father who also rises to great prominence and power in the Persian Empire. Um, if you're familiar with the sight and sound theater ministry, um, both in Branson, Missouri and in Lancaster County, they are in Lancaster County now in Pennsylvania, they're putting on an Esther production. And we saw it when we were there over spring break, and it was, for the most part, wonderfully done. Our students at His Hill have done some productions recently on the book of Esther. A couple of the girls put together a musical on Esther, and it was just w- great to watch. Lots of fun, and, and they did a wonderful job. So I'm going to burst everybody's bubble here with Esther this morning. And you may not like my take on Esther and Mordecai. Uh, but first, let me just give you a rundown of, of the, um, the key features of this book, uh, just by way of remembrance. You remember that we're talking about the time of the Persians, and actually we're coming to the conclusion of the Persian Empire when it is losing its power. And in fact, Greece is is the next ascending power as the book of Daniel prophesied would happen. So when we drop down into the book of Esther, the king, Xerxes, is actually in a long planning stage of how to fight against Greece. And historians believe he took anywhere from three to four years to prepare and plan his campaign. And then when he had all of his ships positioned and ready to go, he spent six months with all of his generals and princes actually strategizing for how they're going to fight the Greeks. And at the end of that six months, they had a seven-day wine festival, um, beer bash, only with wine, and and they were celebrating this this, um, impending victory that they were anticipating because they'd never been defeated. Well, they will be defeated. They will lose to the Greeks, and it becomes the beginning of the end of the Persian Empire. But it was of no small thing that these very superstitious people, and they were extremely superstitious, that just on the eve of their attacking Greece, that King Xerxes says to his queen, Vashti, I want you to do something for me. I want you to come out in front of all this, these drunken men and show everybody how beautiful you are. And she goes, not in this lifetime. And she said, no. Well, they're going, all these people now, all these men are in a panic. For one reason, they're thinking, if the queen doesn't obey the king, then none of our wives are going to obey us. But there was also something else going on. They're going, if the king can't even rule over his wife, then how in the world is he going to defeat the Greeks? And so they took this as a bad omen that Vashti would not obey her husband. And so they got their heads together. The king said, what should I do? And they said, this is real simple. Just get rid of Vashti. Okay. So he got rid of Vashti, and they went off to war, and they lost. He came back licking his wounds, and he was very despondent, and so they said, he needs a new Vashti. So they came to the king and said, you need another queen to take the place of Vashti. And so they held um, 
what was basically a beauty contest, um, but it was um, more involved than just parading across the stage. They brought together women from the entire 127 provinces of Persia, the most beautiful women they could find. They got to spend a year making themselves even more beautiful. And then after a year of beautifying themselves, they all got a one-night stand with the king. And Esther was selected. She was living in Susa, one of the principal palace cities for Persia. She had, her, her parents had died when she was a child. Her cousin, her uncle's son, took her in and raised her in Mordecai. They should not have been in Susa. The decree under Cyrus had already been issued that all the Jews from everywhere in the world could return to Israel. These were two people who refused to return. We don't know why it's not said. We know that God's going to use it, but they refused to go back, and now they're in Susa. The chances are that it was much more probable for her to come to the attention of those who were trying to pad the king's harem while she was living in Susa than she would have come to the attention of anybody if she'd been living in that far-off province of Israel. So she's taken into, she's found, she's taken into the harem, and she is told by her, her cousin, refuse to tell anybody who you are. Hide your identity. Now that's very significant. Obviously, his motivation was he was trying to protect her. There would have been enough anti-Semitism going on at the time that he felt this was the wisest thing to do for her protection. It was also extremely carnal and unbelieving and cowardice. You should not forget, when we started the book of Ezra, we spent some time looking at the passages in 1 Kings and throughout the Old Testament where it says the reason that Israel is in the predicament that they're in is because they lost their distinctiveness. There was no difference between them and the world that they lived in. And now Mordecai is telling his niece, his, his cousin, telling his cousin, hide your distinctiveness. Be just like the world. That wasn't Daniel. When Daniel was taken captive, he refused even to eat the king's food. Everything about Daniel's life was distinctive. Everything. He said, I know I'm a captive and I know it could cost me my life, but I will live true to God's word. Not Esther. Not Mordecai. So this is where I'm probably bursting your bubble here. She hid who she was. She was known by her Persian name, Esther, and not her Hebrew name. She ate the king's food. She her life was such that there was nothing that you could see in her life that would tell you she's different. Nothing. That's a problem. That's not how Daniel lived in the same circumstances. She willingly goes into a harem. She willingly has a one-night stand. She's not married to this man. This is fornication. Adultery. If he's already married, maybe he was. And she consents to marrying an unbeliever. Everything about this was wrong. But all of those factors, going by her Persian name, the, the, the one night stand, marrying an unbeliever, all of those things are just symptomatic of a woman and her older cousin who have said, we are going to hide our 
identity. We will not be distinctive in this situation. It is pure, unadulterated carnality. They are simply being motivated by self-preservation. That is all that's going on here. And I've said many times before, and I appreciate that, that professor in seminary who pointed out to us that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, before they ate of that fruit, there was no self-preservation in their hearts. None. It was only after they ate of the fruit that they're hiding from God. They were not hiding from God. There was no sense of self-preservation before sin entered into the picture. And it is one of the most dominant influences, forces in each of our lives, that force that I must survive at all cost. Well, Esther was a survivor. And God, in his mercy and grace, is going to use her carnality. God can even use carnality to accomplish his will. My daughter, Audrey, has a t-shirt that is one of my favorite. It says, it's a, it says, the Bible says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. And then the next line is, and that's why I don't jog. <laughs> if you don't get that, you probably didn't get Lugie's joke about atheist having being nonprofit. Um, <laughs> I love your humor, Lugie, but um, so, sometimes it's an acquired taste. It takes a little bit to do. <laughs> so what I've just read here in Esther is um, the climax, or at least one of the climaxes of this book. And I didn't finish the story. She gets selected, and, and then it, become, it comes to the, selected to be the queen, it comes to the attention of Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate, which means he was in a, he was in a position of influence. He was regarded as an elder in the city. People didn't know who he was. And it comes to his attention that um, there's a plot against the king to assassinate him. And he reveals the plot, and the king's life is saved. Also during this time, the king is elevating another man named Haman. Haman is an Agagite, or an Amalekite. They are the arch enemies of Israel. They first come on the scene when Saul was king, and, he was, and God said through Samuel to Saul, absolutely destroy the Amalekites, and they've had problems with the Amalekites ever since because he refused to obey what God was saying. So this Agagite is, a, is known to everybody for who he is, and Mordecai has decided that he hates the man, and he will not bow down to the man. And so he is the number two guy in the whole country, and whenever he walks by Mordecai, Mordecai refuses to bow. He just stays standing. So they, Mor Haman says, who is this guy, and why doesn't he bow? Just drove him nuts. And so they find out that he's a Jew. And he says, I cannot bow because I'm a Jew. I would argue that was a bold-faced lie. That was not a statement of integrity. Because he says that, and then he will also say, that's in chapter 3, verse 2. But then in chapter 5, verse 9 of Esther, he's refusing to stand for the same guy. So he won't bow to him. Neither will he stand for him. So maybe you could argue and say, well, he's, he's refusing to worship the man, which is a huge stretch. 
There's no indication that he was being asked to be worshipped. It was a way of simply showing deference. Cultures all over the world today, people bow to each other. It's just a tip of the head, but it's bowing. And you would do that if you were in those cultures. You go to an oriental culture and they tip their head, you would do the same thing. You just do it instinctively without thinking about it. That's bowing. It's not a sign of worship. It's a sign of respect, of showing deference. This man, Mordecai, could have bowed and should have bowed. He is not because he hates the Amalekites and because he's proud and obstinate and self-willed. And he has no idea that his own carnality is going to come close to, being, to resulting in the complete eradication, genocide of the Jewish people because of a man's pride. And I say that because in chapter 5, it's not about bowing. It's about simply standing up. We would do the same thing. The President of the United States, even if we don't like him, if, he were to, if, if we were in the room and he walked in, we would stand up out of deference to his office. Mordecai will not bow, and he will not stand. This is personal. This is not principled. There is nothing in the Bible that says that he is right. And he is using scripture. Can't quote chapter and verse because there is no chapter and verse. He's just saying it's because I'm a Jew. And it, like I said, put the entire people of Israel at risk. I mean, there are a lot of decisions we wouldn't make if we knew in advance what the consequences would be. Mordecai was living a carnal life. It's been observed by more than a few. In fact, you can't read any commentary on Esther without somebody saying, there is no mention of God in this book. There is no mention of prayer in this book. Even here in the portion that I just read for the scripture meeting, this reading this morning, Esther said, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. She doesn't say pray. There is no, no mention of God. And that's the age-old question everybody tries to answer. Why is there no mention of God in this book? Why is there no mention of prayer in this book? And nobody knows. So we say, well, we think it's because, and I've used this argument for as long as I've been alive because it sounds good to me. I'm not going to use it this morning. We think it's because they were in Persia. And if they used the name of God, then these carnal Persians would take that name and they would profane it. Which is true. They did that with the names of all the gods that they had defeated. So there's some substance to that. But then why is God's name in Daniel? It presents a problem. And I would argue this morning that God's name's not in Esther. Because God is trying to show us the carnality of these people. God is trying to show us these are people who are not living in proper relationship with God. And nonetheless, God is going to use them. He's an amazing God. Haman will want to murder Mordecai. The tables are going to be completely turned Esther 
asked the king to come to his banquet and include Haman. After the first banquet, she doesn't reveal why she wants them to come to her banquet. And so she says, come tomorrow and I'll tell you. So after that, neither man could sleep very well. And the one man, Haman, is plotting to kill the other one. He's building a gallows for Mordecai. And the king, he can't sleep because probably just thinking, what is so important to the queen that she would risk her life to come and ask me to lunch for a banquet? So he's more than a bit curious about this. He can't sleep, stays up all night. So he reads the most boring thing he can to go to sleep, and it's the chronicles of his own life. And somebody reads and says, there's this guy, Mordecai, who revealed a plot that you should have been killed and you weren't killed. He goes, I never, did I ever do anything for that guy? Nope. Huh. Here comes Haman, first thing in the morning. Haman, what should I do for the man that I need to honor above everybody else? And Haman thinks he's talking about himself. He's like, well, this is what you need to do. Have a parade. Have the guy that's top in the country lead a horse with the crown of the king on the horse. And, and you, know, you know, they actually did that. They crowned horses. And so, and lead him through the country. This is what the city, this is what the king does to the man he wants to honor. And king says, that's great. Haman, do this for Mordecai. Uh-oh. And Mordecai realizes he's in trouble because the tables have turned. And so then they have their second banquet. Haman comes back just defeated. And Esther finally says, the, what, the reason I'm calling you to this banquet is because I'm asking for my life. And not just for my life, but for the life of all my people. Because there is an enemy who wants to annihilate us all. And the king goes, what are you talking about? Who would do this? And she goes, that guy right there, Haman. And Haman must have been just sheet white. He knows before she even points him out, it's him. King's so mad, he gets up and he walks into the garden. Meanwhile, Haman falls on top of Esther, pleading for his life, only for the king to come back in, and it looks like his wife is being assaulted. And they killed him right on the spot and hung him on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai. And then made Mordecai in place of Haman, gave him all of his wealth, his home, everything. And now they've got to decide, well, what are we going to do with this law that's gone out? Because the Persians can't change their laws. And there's been a law that on this certain day that all the Jews are going to be destroyed. And so under, under Mordecai and Esther's influence, they said, King, just make another law a law of self-defense, that the people, the Jewish people, have the right to defend themselves. And they did, and they, and they defeated their enemies. There was a great slaughter against everybody who came to them. And it was such a miraculous turnaround where instead of the Jewish people being annihilated, they've actually rose as victors. They recognized that God was in it, even though God's name is not mentioned, and they had a, pre, a, a feast, a new feast, which is not one initiated by God, still observed by the Jews today, and it's called the Feast of Purim, or Purim. And it's named after the casting of lots, which was called Pur, P-U-R. Amazing story. And Esther is such the heroine. I mean, she got to that place where she says, you know, if I have to die, I will die. If I perish, I perish. And that's the reason for my little story about my daughter's T-shirt. 
The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Yes, this was a point of courage. Yes, she did the right thing. And we are so thankful that she, at this point, finally did the right thing. Yes, God used the secrecy, the, re- the refusal to be known, to, tr- to have her true identity expressed. God used all that. Yes. But what, her, what brought her out of her carnality was a crisis, a life and death crisis. She was facing a tragedy that there was no way to escape from. You know, I like quoting Oswald Chambers. And I so much appreciate one thing in particular that he said, where in one of his devotionals he says, life is a tragedy. And most of us, including myself, growing up in the times that we've grown up in, we've, we have never really, I mean, we have punctuations of tragedy that have happened in our lives. But we see those as the exception because life has been so good for most of us. And the bad times are the exceptional times. Every single day isn't bad for most of us. And so we don't see life as tragic. I remember Dean of Men, when I was in Bible college, said, said to me, Charlie, life is hard. And I said, I know that. He looked at me and said, no, you do not. And looking back now, 40 years later, he was absolutely right. Now, what Chambers means is not just that life is full of difficulties. Because he goes on and says, in all the difficulties of life, do not think that God came to rescue you from those difficulties. He did not come as to give you a way out of all your problems. He is the problem solver. He is the crisis deliverer. He says Jesus came to live his life of righteousness and holiness in you in the midst of your circumstances. He didn't come to deliver you from your circumstances. See, this is why Paul says, I pray that this thorn would be delivered from me. Three times I prayed, and Jesus said, stop praying about it. I am not going to deliver you from this thorn. Because my strength is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about what pertains to my weakness. He is not in the business of rescuing us from all of our problems. And if you think that he is, you've got the wrong Savior. You have a Jesus of your own imagination. He has come to be the living God, the holy and righteous God, in the midst of circumstances that he will not change. But we are absolutely committed to changing those circumstances ourselves. And thinking that God then blesses us or wants us to get out of those circumstances. We are experts at it. And we can justify anything because God doesn't want me to suffer. God doesn't want me unhappy. God doesn't want my life to be filled with pain. Look around me. Nobody else has a life filled with pain like I do. This is not what God wants. He wants me happy. He wants me fulfilled. 
But that is only in Christ. He does not want us to find our happiness and fulfillments in circumstances, but in Him. And to be a people who can make the Jewish people jealous because in the midst of circumstances that are crushing, we're not crushed. In the midst of circumstances that we cannot escape from, we have freedom. In circumstances that ought to just smash the life out of us, we live. And there's no explanation for it other than Jesus Christ. So sometimes God has to bring us into circumstances it is no longer humanly possible to get out of them. And that's where Chambers says, and that's when the cross of Christ is more than a farce. Because when life becomes so tragic that you cannot get out of your circumstances, at that point, the living Jesus becomes alive. Circumstances don't change. But now the cross is no longer a farce. The only option is to cry out to God. So I made a little sentence here capitalizing on C's. Crisis is the catapult that moves us from complacency and compromise and carnality to clarity, courage, and walking according to our calling. When we are living carnal lives, we will not be people of courage. And God wants his people to be people of courage. I appreciate what Psalm 1 says. It doesn't speak about courage, but it talks talks about being a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are as chaff which the wind drives away. Or as Proverbs says, they flee when no one is pursuing. I don't want to be a coward. And I hate it that it often takes crisis, true, tragic crisis, to shake me out of my complacency and my cowardice and begin to live the way that we're supposed to live. How many people do you know who when they got that word from the doctor, you are not going to survive this, they became bolder than they've ever been in their life in sharing Jesus? Right? My mother, wow, she became bold. Always loved the Lord, but there's something about knowing this is it. This is final. You're not going to make it out of this. I've got nothing to lose. If I perish, I perish. That's where she was finally. And it's a good place to be. It brought her to clarity. I've been living a lie. Hiding who I am. Thinking I could live like the world and escape, somehow be safe. And now, this is choice, the uncle who told her, hide your identity, 
the carnal uncle who won't sit or stand when he should sit or stand or bow his head. That same guy is saying, don't think you'll escape. Well, why is she in this situation? Because he wanted her to escape. He didn't want her to risk her life and be hurt. And now that guy is saying, time to stand up. And she knew he was right. Even though I think he'd been wrong in much of what he'd been doing. She knew she needed community. And so she says to her people who she had refused to acknowledge as being part of, fast for me. The clarity that we need to all come to and which tragedy that we cannot escape brings us to is who am I? That's the first question. Who am I? If there's ever a time when Christians need to answer that question, it's now. Who am I? Are you part of this world? Or are you an alien, a stranger to this world? Why am I here? If it's about you, then we will spend our lives trying to protect ourselves. If it's about happiness, if it's about anything other than I am here because of Jesus Christ, then my sole commitment will be me. And life will all be about protecting myself. Who am I? Why am I here? And what matters most? And it is not life. It is not happiness. It is not health. It is not family. It is Jesus Christ and living a life that is true to him. In every way, Jesus is our example and our means. He knew who he was. He knew why he was here. And he knew what matters most. And it was obedience to his father. Nothing else mattered more than that. And if the father says, go to the cross and die, then he goes to the cross without hesitation. Did it trouble him? Absolutely. So much that he was sweating blood. But there was no hesitation. And he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and give himself for you and me. He knew who he was. He knew why he was here. And he knew what mattered most. I believe there's a direct correlation between carnality and cowardice. Between holiness and courage. Courage to live the life that no one would want to live. In a life that we would, in the flesh, in our carnality, do everything possible to escape from. But we won't. Because we know why we're here. We know who we are. And we know what matters most. This is going to be so important for setting the stage for the last few chapters of Ezra. 
Because once again, when Ezra finally comes on the scene, he was not in the scene in the first six chapters, but when Ezra shows up in the last part of the book, he has to deal not with building a building, but seeing the people walk with God. Everybody at that time would have had very recent knowledge of Esther and that story, which was a story of how God rescues us even when we put ourselves in situations of our own making. He doesn't rescue us from the situation necessarily. He did deliver the Jewish people, but it was a situation of their making. And the point that I think that Ezra's going to drive home to these people, do not be a people who are presuming on the grace of God by thinking that God just wants to rescue you every time you have a problem. Don't take that as the lesson from Esther. The lesson from Esther is don't be what she was, a person living in a foreign land who refused to acknowledge who she was. We must be distinct because our God is a holy God, and if that means nothing else, it means he is distinct from everything else that we know. And a distinctive God wants a distinctive people. And that's what Ezra will press home to the people when he gets on the scene. We must be distinct from this world. I heard the whistle. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for the, the tremendous grace that you show toward us. You know better than we, God, just how many things in our life are motivated by self-preservation and not by your spirit. I pray, God, that in your mercy to us that you would Teach us and lead us in the truth. Expose to us, God, where we are functioning according to the flesh rather than your spirit. That we would repent, God, of this diabolical determination for self-preservation and come to that place through the crises that you permit to come into our life. We pray it wouldn't have to be through crisis, but to come to that place as Esther did to say, if I perish, I perish. My life is in Christ. My life is not in living, but Jesus is life. And that we would be a people, God, who are made bold. And that that boldness would come not from determination, not from a commitment to stand against the darkness, but that boldness would just flow naturally, God, out of a holy walk with you walking in the light with you, knowing this earth is not our home. This is not what we've been made for. We have a destiny, God, that we're looking to, and that no one can take it from us. Lord Jesus, we want at this dark time to be lights, and we know that comes from walking in the light with you after placing our faith in Christ. Make us bold. Expose the carnality that we would live before you with abandonment and believing Jesus to be sufficient in the circumstances of life, even when there are circumstances not of our making and beyond our control.
that Jesus would be exalted and that we would be a distinct people for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.